0: DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.
1: The Judiciary Committee, which I sit on, as you know, should have hearings on three things, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and the culture of corruption that appears to exist at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm of the view, particularly given the urgency of what has just taken place with Bob Mueller speaking, that those hearings should commence immediately and that we need to present the information to the American people. Hakeem
0: Jeffries is my congressman. He represents the district I live in in Brooklyn, but he's quickly becoming a national figure. He's the fifth highest ranking Democrat in Congress, and he was critical in the passage of the First Step Act, which represents major criminal justice reform. The act says you must house inmates within 500 miles of their families, which is important because when you cut inmates off from their families, they have no support system to keep them from going deeper into crime. The act says you can't shackle pregnant inmates during pregnancy because that's insane. It also lessens the disparity in the penalties around crack and powder cocaine because they're the same drug. And it imposes that change retroactively. This is important legislation that's going to have a big impact on federal inmates and their families. How did he help get a big bill like that through the system at a time when Congress is dysfunctional and the president is an insane racist? I'm dying to know. And when do we start impeachment proceedings? We talk a lot here about Trump and impeachment and how the Democrats are combating him. I Can't wait till we're done with this guy. Anyway, Congress on your corner has come to my house. It's the Congressman Hakeem Jeffries on tour. Show. So the first step law. Yeah. You wrote... Yeah. You championed. It's a really powerful initiative, um, you know, talking about women who are incarcerated, not being shackled while they're pregnant. And three months after they're pregnant, uh, there's hundreds of millions of dollars for re-entry programming. I-, I love this part of it, that you must house people within 500 miles of their family. Because part of what happens, you lock people up and they're broken away from their family, from people who are law abiding. So the connections they're creating are then with people who are also who are criminals and you're sending them off to another life.
1: That's exactly right. And what we've seen uh, with mass incarceration and the over-criminalization that we have in America is that families and communities have been totally devastated. And in part, it's the separation that has occurred uh, as a result of the overcriminalization and the fact that in many parts of the country and we face this dynamic here in New York, where you have downstate communities, approximately seven from New York City, in and around places like Bedford-Stuyvesant and Brownsville and East New York and Harlem and Southeast Queens and the South Bronx, uh, who were the ones who were victimized by the mass incarceration epidemic and sent hundreds of miles away to upstate communities. And that phenomenon, we've realized, has taken place all across the country. And so as part of the first step act, we wanted to make sure that we started to bring families closer together.
0: Does this do anything? And there's so much good in the law. I don't want to say where is this? Does it do anything about the collect call situation that families who are calling inmates are charged usurious rates? They didn't do anything wrong. And it breaks down their ability to continue to talk to their loved ones who are locked up. Yeah,
1: it's a great point. On that, and we have begun to limit sort of the exploitation of incarcerated individuals as it relates to things like the collect call situation and the amount of money that inmates are forced to pay or their families are forced to pay, which are outrageous, uh, as well as the minuscule amount of money that they're actually compensated for the jobs that they do when they're behind bars, often for some multinational, multi-billion-dollar corporations. So we haven't begun to totally turn that situation around as it relates to those elements of what we would call the prison-industrial complex, but we've made some progress in that regard. One of the reasons why we titled this bill the First Step Act is because we concluded that mass incarceration has been with us since 1971. Mm-hmm. It will take more than a singular... Mm-hmm waving of a legislative magic wand to get rid of it but you got to start somewhere and then build upon that foundation to eradicate the whole system
0: i feel like three to four years ago this would have been unthinkable this sort of a bipartisan approach to giving uh inmates something right we're going to put you closer right we're going to give you some reentry money we're going to try to help you and republicans have somehow come around in the last few years saying no, no, we don't have to be tough. I mean, it was always get tougher and tougher and tougher on crime to where President Clinton had to get tougher on crime just to be in the game. And now Republicans are coming back to where progressives have been of being more, I don't want to say softer, but more empathetic toward people who are locked away. Why do you think the other side
1: has had that change? Yeah, it's a great point. And it was sort of a A point of exploration for me when I first got to Congress, because when I was in the state legislature, we used to do battle with upstate Republicans to try to eradicate things like the Rockefeller drug laws yes. and the prison industrial complex that had been built up here in New York state. I arrive in Washington and I begin to see the early foundation for a bipartisan effort. I remember I was put on the task force for overcriminalization uh reform to deal with this phenomenon in America. And one of the witnesses that I agreed with early on in that testimony was someone from the Heritage Foundation. And at first I'm trying to figure out, am I being hustled right now? Right, right. Right, right, right as you know, right, that's a conservative think tank. But then as we began to unravel the situation, the fiscal conservatives came to the conclusion that overcriminalization in America had an adverse impact on our ability to be economically competitive. Mm. And that spending $80 billion per year in incarceration was the equivalent for fiscal conservatives of a failed government program. Mm. Then you had the Christian conservatives, the evangelicals, who fundamentally believe in redemption because that's at the core of Christian theology. And so the notion of helping currently incarcerated individuals successfully transitioned back into society, as we did with the First Step back, allocating uh, or authorizing $375 million over a five-year period to bring to life reentry programming, appealed directly to the evangelical spirit of giving everybody a second chance.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember um, my father calling me. We, we, I grew up in Boston, and my dad calling me and say, Len Bias is dead. And I'm like, you must be joking. Yeah, You know, like he was just drafted by the Celtics yesterday. This is a new era for the Celtics. We were Celtics fans. And uh, he's like, no, no, it's, it's real. And that was the beginning of a lot of the uh, sentencing madness, right? And that was
1: 1986. Is
0: yes, is that right? yes, yeah. yes. And so crack sentencing from that incident and from that moment went exponentially higher. Part of what the First Step Act does is, is it rolls that back.
1: Right? That's right.
0: So, are we? We're not. We're still not at parity, right? Like
1: it's still right. powder cocaine will get uh, less of a penalty than crack cocaine, right? Yeah. So that's correct. So, in 2010, to give credit to President Barack Obama, you had the Congress pass the Fair Sentencing Act, and what the Fair Sentencing Act uh, did was to change the crack cocaine powder cocaine disparity from 100 to one. Which is outrageous. It's the same drug. It's the same drug. There's no pharmacological difference between the two drugs. I've always wanted to use that word. There you go. I can't spell it, but I know what it means, right? (laughs) No chemical difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, yet you had a 100 to 1 difference. It dropped it down to 18 to 1, which was substantial progress. Still not parity, as it should be, but substantial progress. However, it wasn't made retroactive. And that's what this does. And that's what the First Step Act does. So essentially what you had were thousands of people remaining incarcerated under crack cocaine sentences that the Congress said were unjust. But because it was not retroactive, still were locked up. We were able to get retroactivity, which is a rare thing uh, in terms of criminal justice reform and the application of most laws. And that was a line in the sand for many of us uh, at the end of the day on sentencing reform. It happened. And as a result, thousands of people who are currently in the system are on their way out of the system. Most most bills, I mean, the vast
0: majority of bills don't pass, right? They die fairly quickly. This one gets through. I'm curious about how that works. You write it, right? You bring it up in committee. It gets out of that. But that's just procedural. What are you doing To make it pass. Are you visiting members? Are you offering? Hey, look, if you vote
1: for this, I'll vote for that thing for you. Like, how do you make that process work? Yeah, well, part of the reason why I was able to come together is that you had the lead Republican who did a tremendous job on this bill. Congressman Doug Collins, who is a conservative Republican from rural Georgia, and I was the lead Democrat in the House. And we were able to come together behind the principle that mass incarceration is not a Democratic problem or Republican problem. It's an American problem. Well, how did you loop him into what you wanted? Because
0: part of the game is Republicans don't want to see Democrats have any success and sometimes vice versa. So he's incentivized to be like, "Uh, Congressman Jeffries, I
1: don't want you to have any kind of win. So, no. Yeah. Well, that's been one of the interesting things about serving on the Judiciary Committee, where we... Often don't agree. We have jurisdiction on the Judiciary Committee over civil rights, women's rights, reproductive rights, gun ownership rights, immigration rights. These are tough issues, right? Controversial issues where Doug Collins and I, for instance, don't see eye to eye. But we also have jurisdiction over things like uh, privacy in and around the Internet, where there's growing consensus, intellectual property, copyright, things of that nature, as well as criminal justice reform, where for the reasons that I talked about earlier, In addition to the fact that we have libertarians, folks like Rand Paul, who don't believe in uh, government overreach and want to fight that. And we're convinced that government overreach in the criminal justice space where they can take away your life or your liberty is of utmost concern. And so you had this coalition of Republicans who were open minded and Collins and I were able to come together and revisit criminal justice reform that was on the top of the agenda in the final year or two of the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. and we came close, but then the presidential election got in the way. And so Donald Trump gets elected, and at first it was unclear whether we'd be able to bring the coalition back together, but Collins had a conversation that he wanted to reintroduce the bill. Uh, I said, you know, I'm game for it, but let's carve out, you know, a strategic pathway forward. And then Jared Kushner, interestingly enough, uh, indicated from the administration perspective uh that he wanted to try to do something on prison reform and he invited me to the White House at first I said well I think it's better if you come to Congress and let's have a conversation here to see whether he was why was that important well because you know from my standpoint the the you know it, it was it's an inflammatory thing for me to show up at the White House because of everything else that Donald Trump represented. And so I didn't want to show up at the White House for a potential photo op that wasn't going to turn into anything. You didn't want to be used. I didn't want to be used. I wanted to make sure that the administration was serious. I didn't know Kushner at that point. Um, But he comes to the Hill. He agrees, to his credit, to come sit down, talks to Collins and I first, and then eventually myself and Cedric Richmond have breakfast with him at the House dining room to talk about what was possible And I think we became convinced that because of his own experience with his father having been incarcerated, as he has Mm -hmm. talked about, that he was authentically committed to trying to get something done from the administration perspective. And once I was convinced that there was a pathway to eventually get something not just out of the House, we would control that process, or the Senate, the senators would handle that, but that if we got something to the president's desk, he would sign it. Then we were all in on the effort. And to your question, really, is a case-by-case, member-to-member effort. First, try to convince members on the Judiciary Committee that this is the right thing to do. And then we got it out of committee um, with the majority of Democrats on the Judiciary Committee supporting it. And then we had to battle it out on the House floor because there were some advocacy groups initially, like the NAACP, Uh, and the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights that were of the view that if you can't do prison reform and sentencing reform together, abandon the effort. Right. We took the position and Van Jones and his advocacy group and Families United Against Mandatory Minimums and Mark Morial and the National Urban League had a different position. We said, no, we have to start somewhere because we have a bipartisan effort. And if you can get a Meaningful bill, even if it starts as prison reform, helping currently incarcerated individuals, the most vulnerable in society, successfully reintegrate themselves back into the community. That's the starting point to negotiate something up. And from it there. sounds like you are listening
0: on the other side for where can I find common ground? Your father was incarcerated, so you have some empathy. Uh, you are a Christian, so you can deal with redemption. You right? So wherever we can find. Whatever way I can get you to agree, I'm looking for that.
1: That's absolutely correct, and you try to find ways and areas where people are authentically committed to the issue. Because if you're going in the battle, you want to make sure that the people you're going in the battle with are going to be riding with you, so that when the other side opens fire on you, they don't start running in the other direction. They're right there with you, and you know systematically both. The folks on the Democratic side, Cedric Richmond, who was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, phenomenal. Karen Bass, who was also on the Judiciary Committee with me, phenomenal. We all were in alignment that this was the right thing to do. So that was really a starting point for me. And then we were able to build upon it, knew we had a conservative coalition on the other side, led by Doug Collins, knew that Kushner was successful, knew that the Koch brothers and Grover Norquist and Newt Gingrich and all of these folks had expressed an interest so that. Um, If the Fox News crowd were to start acting up, that Trump would actually have people on the hard right who were in his corner. Um, So, you know, we kind of pieced all of these things together and realized that there was a real pathway toward getting
0: something done. You talk about wanting to go into battle, knowing that those folks are going to stand with you. That has been a big problem for Republicans because Trump is not consistent. They go into battle on a given issue. And then he's like, sure, Nancy, I'll give you what you want. And everyone's like, what What are you talking about? What are you doing? All right, let's get to the heart of the matter. Impeachment, right?
1: You're against impeachment. Well, I'm of the view that there's a process and that impeachment is not on the table yet, but it's also not off the table. Do you want to see the process begin? I think, well, we're going to have to have a group discussion about that. And I don't want to get out ahead of Jerry Nadler. And I don't want to get out ahead of Speaker Pelosi. What Jerry Nadler has said, however, and I agree with this perspective, is that the Judiciary Committee, which I sit on, as you know, should have hearings on three things. Obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and the culture of corruption that appears to exist at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm of the view, particularly given the urgency of what has just taken place with Bob Mueller speaking, that those hearings should commence immediately and that we need to present the information to the American people. What you call those hearings, that'll be a decision that ultimately will be made by both Chairman Nadler and Speaker Pelosi. But the substance of how to proceed has to begin immediately.
0: Are you, so is is there a difference between you and Speaker Pelosi on that issue? Because she seems to be like, no, this is not good for us, not good for the country, we're not doing
1: that. Well, no, Speaker Pelosi, I think it's clear that, from the context of the investigation, she's already on board with supporting Chairman Natler in moving forward with hearings on obstruction of justice, on abuse of power, and on the culture of corruption that appears to have existed at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and may still exist. Now, where Speaker Pelosi and I have said that we need to proceed with caution is launching full on into what you would call an impeachment proceeding Without gathering all of the evidence, because, you know, my perspective has been the House is functionally the grand jury. Right. We have the capacity to issue an indictment. We didn't have to send that indictment in the form of impeachment over to the Senate. But in order for that indictment to be as strong as possible, you have to gather the evidence. So our view is, one, we should have the unredacted Mueller report because you can't trust. You have not seen the unredacted Mueller report? We have not. Seen the unre- No no member of Congress on the House side, Democrats, have seen How's the that? unredacted Mueller report. How's that? Well, in part, they- so they offered to allow a few committee chairs and the speaker and a few members of leadership the report, but to do it in a classified setting, which would have meant nothing because you could have looked at the report and then you would have left the room and not been able to communicate to anyone, including Torre <laughs> on this wonderful podcast. It would have made no sense, right? So we've refused to do it. What we're saying is you can't trust the so-called attorney general right. that those redactions were legitimate. So before we proceed with whatever we're going to figure out, we need to see the unredacted Mueller report. We need the underlying documentation. And we want to hear, the American people should hear from Bob Mueller. He should tell his story. He should do it publicly. And my view has been, let's take those methodical steps and then see where that leads us. We
0: live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name,
1: Elizabeth Taylor.
0: I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth 1st the, the podcast, wherever you listen back to the show in one second, but I want to give a shout out to longtime supporter of Torrey show, Saks Underwear. That's S-A-X-X Underwear. They sent me a ton of underwear and I love it. They sent me these Two-in-one underwear plus short things that I wear to play tennis. It's so comfortable. It's so smooth. All their underwear looks good. It goes on. You don't think about it the rest of the day because it just fits you smoothly. It doesn't ride up. It doesn't chafe. It's got this ballpark pouch that holds your boys in place, takes care of you. You put them on. You don't think about them. Look, it's the best underwear that I've ever worn, and I'm not kidding. So... I want you to have a chance to get these for Father's Day. Shop anywhere on their site, saxunderwear.com, S-A-X-X-Underwear.com, and use the promo code TORE at checkout to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. They got underwear. They got two-in-one shorts. They got swim trunks. They got the ballpark pouch that takes care of you all day long. If you want the best underwear of your life, go to saxunderwear.com, saxxunderwear.com saxx Ladies, think about this for Father's Day. saxunderwear.com. Use the promo code TORE at checkout for $5 off. how much does the calendar impact the the, the the thought process there by which I mean we are into the 2020 election are people saying we're about to have a national referendum on whether or not she remain president let's not throw this into the mix of that like let, you know if it was 2018 would we be doing would we be doing impeachment or, or how much of that is part of
1: it yeah that's a great question In my view we still have a substantial period of time to follow the facts, you know, make sure we apply the law and be guided by the Constitution, irrespective of the political calendar. In part because I think there were 22, 23 candidates. I think it's, it's 60 now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's soon to be. It's going to take a while for the Democratic primary to sort through yeah. the almost two dozen candidates that exist which is a good thing. Let that process play itself out. Let them make their case to the American people. We're going to legislate. We're going to investigate. And if necessary, we're going to continue to litigate against the effort to stonewall us that's taking place amongst the Trump administration. We can do all three at the same time. Do you Are you, are you of the view that an impeachment proceeding could be bad for the Democratic Party? I don't necessarily share that perspective. I think that It will be dangerous for us to make a decision about impeachment anchored in politics. Yes. Either way, to either decide that we're not going to impeach because that may be bad politically, or that we are going to dive into impeachment because we think it'll help politically. At the end of the day, we're charged with the solemn constitutional responsibility of trying to figure out, did this president commit high crimes or misdemeanors? The Mueller investigation appears to have presented at least 11 different instances of serious obstruction of justice that could lead to that conclusion. But we need to work our way through that process. We need to do it methodically yet aggressively. I think, you know, going too deep into the 2020 campaign could present challenges, but we're not even close uh, to that danger zone right now. Do you feel the pressure from the progressive wing
0: of the Democratic Party that says, we want an impeachment hearing and the Democrats are being
1: uh, spineless and weak once again by not doing that? Well, I mean, I understand why people are enthusiastic about wanting to storm the castle, because (laughs) the president is totally out of control. Mm -hmm. But I think we have a responsibility as members of Congress to continue to be thoughtful in how we approach things, not to say that others who want us to jump straight to impeachment are not being but you know we're in a we're in a war right now you know for the heart and soul of the country yes. for the premise of the rule of law and we also are likely to have to battle this out eventually before the supreme court when there's a dispute between congress on witnesses or hearings or testimony or evidence and executive branch The Constitution says the courts ultimately have to decide it. Now, one of the things that the courts weigh is whether one side or the other have attempted to arrive at a reasonable accommodation Mm -hmm. of the other side's concerns. Now, the president and that crew are being totally unreasonable. True, We're going out of our way to be Mr. and Mrs. Reasonable in how we approach things, in part because we have to give ourselves the best chance to succeed when we are trying to get the evidence, the information in the documents that could lead us down the road of a more serious consequence for the president. Do you think the president is racist? You know, what I've said about the president is that he has a history of engaging in racially offensive, inflammatory and derogatory behavior. Yes. Going all the way back to the 1970s when the Trump uh, organization was sued by the Nixon Justice Department, not that's the Kennedy, not the Johnson, right? not the Carter, right. Justice De- the Nixon Justice Department for racial discrimination against Black and Latino housing applicants. And then, of course, his activity as it relates to the Central Park Five right. basically led the lynch mob against those five Black and Latino brothers, wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully imprisoned for a crime they did not commit. And then, of course, uh, this is all predating his behavior, but the five-year perpetrating of the racist lie that Barack Obama was not born in the United States of America. So I said, you know what? The facts speak for themselves. I don't want to judge his heart. I can't get into his head. I can characterize and catalog his behavior, as I've consistently done. Many racist acts. And continue to catalog that behavior as it moves forward through Charlottesville and his attack on black football players at a rally in the Deep South, calling them SOBs. I mean, it's on and on and on, S-hole countries. But, you know, at the same time, I understand why there's some Americans who have a hard time concluding that the president is a racist because they just fundamentally don't want to draw that conclusion right. about the person who's sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So the best that I can do is say, I'm going to catalog the behavior and call it out whenever it occurs. But i also continue to try to find common ground where possible when we're trying to get things done on behalf of the least, the lost, and the left behind, as we did with the First Step Act.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the most important books about politics that I ever read for my education uh, was Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann's It's Even Worse Than It Looks. And they talk about the reasons for dysfunction in Washington. And the big point is that they make is that we have an asymmetrical problem the Republican Party has gone off the deep end uh, ideologically. They are extremist and their behavior, their rhetoric has become extremist. And they know the Democratic Party has shifted leftward, but the Republican Party has gone far, far to the right. Do you do you agree with that? Do you feel that? Do you see that behavior uh, when
1: you're trying to do your job? Well, the big challenge right now that we have, I think, similar to what that analysis shows, but i I cast it a different way is that the Republican party has essentially become wholly owned subsidiaries of the Trump administration. And before that subsidiaries of well, before that, they were subsidiaries of big business to some degree, but right now to the extent that they,
0: but he, you're saying he has taken them over and it's not guided by principle. It's guided by whatever he
1: wants. It's whatever he wants. There is no principle. You can make the case in the past that they had certain principles that were important to them. Around public policy or taxation. around taxation. Right. Right. Or around free trade. Right life. But he tells them we're no longer for free trade, which by the way, is more consistent with my position of fair trade, right. but the notion that they don't have any principles. Right. At this particular point in time. They used to be against what they would call brutal dictators. But now, <laughs> now they because They've got one sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in many ways, in the view of many. But he also has done nothing but embrace, you know, Duarte in the Philippines, brutal dictator. Kim Jong-un in North Korea, brutal dictator. Erdogan in Turkey, brutal dictator. Vladimir Putin of Russia, brutal dictator. It doesn't matter whatever principles they used to have because he embraces them. So that's sort of exhibit A of what has happened to the current iteration of the congressional Republicans. They are wholly owned subsidiaries of the Trump organization, yeah. not separate and co-equal individuals as part of an independent branch of government. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh,
0: Speaker Pelosi got thrown out of the Oval Office again were you in that meeting
1: I was not in that meeting were you in the
0: other meeting I was not in
1: no I was not in either of those so two you've meetings you've got
0: thrown out of the Oval Office yet? no
1: I, I actually have managed to avoid being in the White House during but the presidency
0: you, have, of Donald have, Trump have you so have you seen any of these temper tantrums with your own eyes
1: or not yet I have not seen the temper tantrums with my own eyes although I've been briefed on you know what has actually taken place in first-hand accounts thereafter and I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary thing, but one thing that is clear, everything is about Donald Trump through the lens of Donald Trump, all right? That's the bottom line. And so he feels personally aggrieved that Speaker Pelosi and others, myself included, have said, seems to us that we're seeing a massive cover-up that is taking place right now. That's why the stonewalling is occurring. That's why the so-called attorney general has deliberately misrepresented The uh, findings of the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. That's why Trump would claim he was totally exonerated when Bob Mueller himself has made clear that if they thought that they could exonerate the president, they would have done so. They explicitly declined to do so. Um, And he reacted to that articulation of a view from Speaker Pelosi that we're watching Mm -hmm a cover-up, and he decided to engage in a temper tantrum. He went off to Japan. Hopefully he's gotten it out of his system. Come back. Let's sit at the table. We have crumbling bridges, roads, tunnels, airports, and a mass transportation system that we need to fix. Let's do it together. Um, I don't want to fixate
0: entirely on Trump because he's not the only problem. Mitch McConnell is also a huge part of the problem. Total disgrace. I I, I agree. Um, how does it affect your job as a congressman when you know... Almost nothing that you do is going to get to the Senate, even if it you know, makes sense. and It's good for the country. The Senate is going to shut it down. So does that change how you do your job and what bills you want to write
1: and how you try to send them up and those sort of things? You know, it's very interesting because in some ways we almost have a better shot of trying to partner with Donald Trump to get something good done for the American people if he sees it in his own best interest mm-hmm. and then uh, triangulate against Mitch McConnell and force Trump to jam the legislation down McConnell's throats because public sentiment has risen up and Trump concludes that he needs to get something done on infrastructure or he needs to work with Democrats to drive down the high cost of life-saving prescription drugs and break up the power of Big Pharma, which is what we as Democrats are trying to do. We do continue to pass bills. Uh, We've done so on the gun violence epidemic. We've passed universal criminal background check legislation. We've sent that over to the Senate. Uh, We've sent the Paycheck Fairness Act over to the Senate because we believe in equal pay for equal work for women of this country who on average get paid 80 percent less. That's a disgrace. We've sent over the uh, reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act. We've sent over uh, legislation related to the Equality Act because we believe that, you know, love doesn't discriminate, neither should the law when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity. These are all bills that have gone over to the Senate to die to some degree. It's a legislative graveyard over there. Mitch needs to do his job. We haven't given up because if we can ramp up public attention around what we've been doing to advance the ideals and uh, the the best interest of the American people, but that the Senate's not doing their job, we can either force the Senate to act, or. The stakes around the 2020 election are crystallized in a clearer fashion. They were so crystallized and clear in
0: 2016. But let's stay focused on Mitch. Do you have a sense of what is the point for him? I feel like he puts party ahead of country and power ahead of everything. But I I don't quite
1: understand the game that he's playing. Well, he calls himself the Grim Reaper. I mean, I couldn't have come up with a better description. He actually has called himself in fundraising material that he sent out, the Grim Reaper, appealing to Republican donors that he is going to be the person to stop progressive things from happening in this country, that we as House Democrats can (laughs) pass everything that we want, and he's going to be the one to shut it down. Now, he wanted to shut down... Criminal justice reform. He didn't want to move forward with the first step back, but we created enough uh, momentum around the bill. And you pulled in the White House. The White House through Kushner, as well as the conservative allies that existed the fiscal conservatives, the evangelicals, and the libertarians. So at the end of the day, Mitch McConnell was sort of in the Alamo. He was surrounded, he was outgunned. And It was an instructive lesson for me in terms of how we can move forward and try to navigate around him. But he's a big obstacle. I think the only thing he really cares about, other than his own personal power, is jamming down the throats of the American people, right-wing conservative judges, and that's a frightening thing. The judges,
0: yeah. I mean, I don't see an agenda. I see he's still just playing defense uh, from, you know, we're going to keep, Barack Obama from accomplishing anything, one-term president, that comment from the beginning of Obama's term, and he just continues to just play defense and just wanting to stop everything. You said he's disgraceful. That was your term. What is the most disgraceful thing that Mitch McConnell
1: has done? Well, the most outrageous thing to me was, you know, in 2016, when he basically stole a Supreme Court justice. Yes. Yes. Merrick Garland from Barack Obama and from the country so we could jam a right-wing conservative judge down our throats the next year and in many ways altered the trajectory of the court for generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Changes
0: American history. Absolutely. Changes American history. And and the thing that makes that observation so much more painful and poignant is just today, he said somebody, or just yesterday, somebody asked him, yeah. you get an opening next year, what are you going to do? And he said, oh, oh we're going to push it through. So your rule that, you know, we're so, we're a year away from the election,
1: that doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's party over country for him. Uh, you, you put it as as best uh, as it can be put. You know, party over country, power over party, and him right at the top of that pyramid. So, okay, you work very
0: closely with Speaker Pelosi, the legendary politician. What have you learned from
1: her about how to be a great congressperson? It's a great question, I think... The one thing uh, that I've seen from her, she's both strong and decisive, but also inclusive at the same time. And when there are big decisions to make, she consults with the relevant individuals, the relevant stakeholders, uh, the people who have skin in the game, Mm -hmm. before she makes that big decision. Even if she may have a sense of where she wants to go at the end of the day, uh, she consults with the stakeholders to either try to bring them along or arrive at consensus, and she does it masterfully. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, when asked earlier about um, my perspectives in terms of moving forward toward an impeachment inquiry or not an impeachment inquiry, how we should uh, proceed. I know that the Speaker, we're all scattered throughout the country. Great to be home here with you in Brooklyn, spending time with my constituents, as I have for the last few days, and will continue to do so. Uh, but we all get back next week, and I know she's going to convene us to really talk through where we are now, in part based on what we've heard from our constituents Yes, and where we need to go. And that's just part of her skill as a great leader, a great listener.
0: Is it that she's a great political strategist? Like, what is it that she does so well that's allowed her to get the
1: gavel again? Well, I think, one, you know, she, she understands the moment that we're in, in terms of how to appropriately deal with this president and deal with him in a way that he is flummoxed. He does not know how to respond to Nancy Pelosi because she's both strong uh, but respectful of the office that he holds at the same time. Think about the Oval
0: Office meeting that she was at with uh, Senator Schumer, and she was saying... Let's keep this private. And he keeps popping off, not even realizing what she's doing. And she's like, I'm trying to protect you and the office. Right. But let's do this later away from media. And he's like, no,
1: he can't help himself." And,
0: and so does a moment like that beam into the members offices and they say, like,
1: Nancy's dope? Yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly uh, what takes place. And then when you see a come out of that meeting And she's got the orange coat on and the sunglasses. You know, my response from Brooklyn was like, yo, Nancy Pelosi is gangster." (laughs) Well, I think about what her daughter said. What was it
0: that she'll cut your head off and you won't even realize it? That's right. Um, But, okay, Congress's approval rating is always low. Right. And the typical thing is you like your congressperson, but you don't like Congress. Why is that? Why is
1: Congress's approval rating always so low? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, in part, I think, because what gets projected out in terms of what we're doing in Congress is that it's always chaos. It's always crisis. It's always confusion. It's always conflict. People don't see the effort to get things done in the fine common ground, even around the First Step Act. You know, um, it was a monumental step forward in terms of criminal justice reform. I appreciate the fact that you're covering it in such great detail. Not everyone does that. It was a one-day story in a lot of the national outlets, uh, or a half-day story to tell you the truth, notwithstanding the fact that, as you've laid out, it represents a dramatic sea change. Yeah. In 1994, the crime bill is passed. That accelerates mass incarceration. Democrats and Republicans actually are both responsible for that crime bill and are going to have to own it. Twenty-five years later, we're in a situation where the First Step Act passed, dramatic and overwhelming support from Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, to go in a totally different direction. Seems to me that should be a significant story about how even in the midst of all of the drama, Congress can work together, but that doesn't really get projected out. So in part, it's that there's somewhat of a distorted picture, not the totality of what's taking place in Washington, that there are efforts to try to get things done on behalf of the American people, and some of it is just the natural dysfunction that does truly exist in the partisanship that we have to work our way through. But they hopefully will continue to um, appreciate at least this member of Congress from the 8th Congressional District if they dislike the totality of uh, of the institution. Well,
0: uh, so, OK, you're the number two Democrat in the House of Representatives.
1: right? Well, well, number five. Number five. Not that I'm counting.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals...
1: From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast Radical for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: <laughs> okay, um, how does one move up in the body? Like, what do you what do you have to do to become? I mean, because it's not just seniority, right? It's, yeah there's there's an election and you have, so
1: are you campaigning and how are you, yeah. how, do you how do you move no, on? That's a great question. There's a few different, you know, tracks. There's the committee track, which in part is determined by seniority in terms of who rises to become a chair of a committee. Jerry Nadler now, important chair, Elijah Cummings, important chair, Maxine Waters, important chair of financial services. Uh, in part, that's their longevity. And in part, that's, you know, the colleagues' belief And their capacity to lead the committees forward. And then their elections, they were all unchallenged, but their elections have to get ratified by the body. Then there's the leadership, uh, of which you have sort of the speaker who's elected by the members. The majority leader, that's the number two Democrat elected by the members. That's Steny Hoyer. The majority whip, Jim Clyburn, highest ranking African-American. He's the number three Democrat uh, the number four is the assistant speaker, Ben Ray Lujan, highest ranking Latino in Congress. Number five position is the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. I have the honor of serving in that position. The number six uh, is the vice chair. Those are the top six positions. There are other leadership positions as well, but they're not uh, ranked chronologically.
0: It's about longevity.
1: Right? Yeah, Pelosi's
0: been there for a long time. Denny Hoyer's been there for a long time. Jim Clyburn's been there for over 100 years. It's it's Is it about I have this seat so wrapped up that I can share donations and donors with
1: other people and get them interested in supporting me. Is that part of the game? Well, it's largely what is your vision for the party? And do you have the capacity and do you have the relationships? Because at the end of the day, for instance, I had to run in a competitive election, which is a tough election, running against a very compelling member of Congress, Barbara Lee. Both of us were competing. There was a third candidate, Linda Sanchez, who at the 11th hour decided not to run. So it wound up being a uh, election where the electorate is the actual members. Right. And, you know, it was tough because as a fellow CBC member, it was a friendly contest of ideas Two different generations represented in that. Are you are you like going to each member's office to campaign and those sort of things? Speaking to individual members, going to their offices, seeing them on the floor, picking up the phone and calling them. There are actually uh, whip teams, you know, for every competitive legislative election. So I had a group of members who I knew had my back, and then you talk to them about who are their relationships, but fundamentally. It was about making the case. What was my vision? I said, well, as chair of the House Democratic Caucus, as we transition from the minority to the majority, we have to be able to continue to message with discipline. That's what helped us win the House. You know, legislate with precision. We want to be able to get things done. I was able to be involved in that effort around the First Step Act. Uh, and then proceed with operational unity, knowing that we would face opposition from Mitch McConnell and also a hostile figure at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So maintaining that operational unity was important. That was sort of the platform that I ran on, and I had to make the case to every individual member as to why I thought I could do that best. Let me ask you a tricky
0: electoral question, right? Because you sit in the seat that was previously held by Joe Crowley, who famously lost to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So what are you doing... After how many years in Congress? Uh, I'm in my
1: fourth term, seventh year.
0: Seventh year. So what are you doing to make sure that
1: you're not the next Joe Crowley? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've said to every member of Congress before Joe Crowley lost and we were talking uh, amongst ourselves in the congressional delegation in the weeks leading up to the congressional primary, where Joe Crowley ultimately lost. And my good friend, who's a tremendous congresswoman, Yvette Clark, had a close race unexpectedly. And uh, Carolyn Maloney had a closer than expected race. A young millennial ran against Maloney as well as uh, Congresswoman Yvette Clark. But I I made the observation, not knowing what was going to happen on Election Day, that as long as Donald Trump is president, the electorate will be understandably unsettled. Mm-hmm. And we'll be wondering whether all of us are doing everything necessary to both resist the outrageousness that's coming out of the White House and from the Republicans on the other side of the aisle and turn things around in this country. And that's a standard that we should be held to, which is a high one. And we all have to go out each and every day, make our case, interact with our voters, don't take anyone for granted. Um, And I think I've been able to do that continuously from the moment that I was first elected. But Joe Crowley's loss to Alexandria, who ran a great race, and she's you know, an exciting, smart, uh, charismatic member of Congress. But Crowley, by his own admission, acknowledged that he was looking upward as opposed to paying attention to what was happening on the ground at home. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder for everyone, all 435 members of Congress, now Alexandria herself included, Mm -hmm. that uh, we all have to remember that fundamentally serving the people that we represent at home is the core of what we should be doing.
0: And being seen in the district, right? You have to be known. Look, what's the difference between a good congressman and a
1: great congressman? I think a great congressman, one, both has an intimate connection with the district that she or he represents. Mm -hmm. Really knows the hopes, the dreams, and the aspirations of the people that you were sent to Washington to serve. And not only fights for those hopes, dreams, and aspirations, but legislatively and programmatically brings those to life, mm-hmm. right? A good congressperson knows their constituents and is fighting on their behalf. A great congressperson knows their constituents, is fighting on their behalf, and is getting things done,
0: mm-hmm.
1: particularly in a tough environment. And all of us, I think, are trying to be the greatest possible members of Congress that we can be. I was told
0: that the thing that an elected official spends most of their day doing is fundraising.
1: Is that accurate? Well, I think that's definitely accurate for the members that we call frontliners who, as the name might suggest, are Democrats in tough seats. Okay. Which would include approximately 44 or so Democrats who are in Tough districts across the country, including Max Rose here in a Staten Island-based district. You're about the purple districts that could go either way. The purple districts that can go either way. 31 Democrats currently hold districts that Donald Trump won in 2016. Mm-hmm. And are going to have to stand for re-election in 2020 with Donald Trump's name on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that Donald Trump's name is on the ballot doesn't impact my life in the 8th Congressional District. Both Hillary Clinton and before him... Her, Barack Obama, 90-plus yeah. percent of the vote. Solidly blue. here, Solidly blue. But you have Democrats, including three right here in New York, Max Rose, Anthony Brindisi, and Antonio Delgado, three great new members who are in purple districts. All of those districts, in fact, are Republican-leaning districts. All of those districts were won by Donald Trump in 2016. All three of them are going to face tough reelections. multi Multi-million-dollar races. And so they do have to spend a significant amount of time making sure that they have the resources to be successful. But they also have to make sure, as they're doing, that they're in their districts, they're holding town hall meetings, that they are interacting with their constituents. But someone like you,
0: who's in a safer district, you don't have to spend as much time
1: fundraising. Well, I think the fact that we are in this unsettled political environment right now, I've said to everybody, you can't expect that you're going to go primary free. So even though uh, I don't have a general election to be concerned about. All of us have to be concerned that we could get primary, which is, you know, at the heart and soul of our democracy. Sure. And everybody has that opportunity. And that's the beauty of the house that you have to present yourself for the renewal of your employment contract every two years, Yes. which means that every two years you need to be on it. And part of that is making sure you have the resources. You've had an extraordinary career. Even before
0: Congress, you were had- at some fancy law firm that even I have heard of and you know, Georgetown for public policy and uh, you know it's it, what is your superpower what is the thing that has helped propel you
1: upward in your life well you know I mean I think I'm a product of my environment both in terms of a great family structure growing up in a working class neighborhood here in Crown Heights not not much. Where you came from? Not much. Not much. I mean, you know, my 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 mother was a caseworker. My father was a social worker. Both of them probably never made more than fifty thousand uh, dollars in their careers, and that was probably toward the end of their careers. Modest working class uh, household. You know, was able to go to Midwood High School and then off to Binghamton. But you know, the foundation, the black church, was incredibly important. Growing up in Brooklyn, you know, coming of age in the late '80s, early '90s, hip hop music, golden age. Uh, in my view, uh, was an incredibly important part of my journey, making lifelong friends, you know, here in Brooklyn and then along the way, and just really trying to both be the best person that I can be and trying to embrace what I call fundamentally good people, right? All of us are flawed, myself included. All of us have our own human frailties, right? Every single person, but I think there are people in this world who are just fundamentally good, right? They're just good. They 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 do the right thing. They want to look out for people. They want to be respectful. And trying to align myself with fundamentally good people has has served me uh, well, I think, along this journey that I've taken. Some of your favorite MCs are definitely uh, Biggie, of course. Brooklyn, legend, no doubt. Brooklyn, Jay Z, Legend, Brooklyn, no doubt. Um, Tupac, phenomenal artist, and uh really was a product of many different experiences. Harlem, Baltimore, yep. Panthers. Bay, yep, o- right? Yep. Oakland, yep. the Bay, LA, Death Row, Death Row. Clinton Max. He's I mean, had had everything going on. Right. And uh so he, you know, he was phenomenal. But I'm I'm a fan of the music and what it's meant, you know, it's poetry, it's power, it's raw authenticity is storytelling and uh and it continues to be an important part of my life
0: anybody from the last 10 years who you like i know it gets harder when we get older like these young rappers yeah I'm telling you, nothing, no they, biggie yeah. And awesome. <laughs> but
1: there's a couple who i like would anybody in yeah a, well a, i'd say you know i'm meek mill i've gotten to know to okay. some degree um in part i've gotten to know his 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 art but i got to know his art in part through working with him uh because of his advocacy his story yep. uh in terms of the overcriminalization that he had to deal with mm-hmm. and then him coming out and using that pain and translating it to progress for others uh so i put him there and then of course you know i cardi b i enjoy yeah you know, her music it's yes. interesting she's from the boogie down i got respect for the boogie down There's even though up. i'm bk right and is she from aoc's district do you know that's a good question. I'm not sure if she's from AOC's district or she's from the South Bronx, which would be Serrano's district.
0: There's 435 members of Congress. That's right. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask you to, do it, but could you name every single one of those people? No, no. <laughs> but
1: could, could you name all the Democrats? I could name all the Democrats. Really? I could name all the off Democrats. the top of your head. Off the top of my head. Not going to ask you to do it, but that's, that's yeah. impressive. That's and in impressive. fact, in part, um, that 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 was a work in progress, but the responsibility that I currently hold as chair of the House Democratic Caucus. I, I preside over the weekly meeting of House Democrats when we come back to Washington and we gather uh, on that first morning of the first full day. And in presiding over that meeting, you know, I've got to be in a position when, when someone stands up. I know who that is. I know who that is. Yes, And yes. Uh, and so that it's been a joy to, to get to know the members. And by the way, when you're campaigning, you, you know, you're approaching everybody as well. So that process begins the journey of getting to know everyone.
0: Engaging in political ideas, I find myself that I have a very difficult time liking Republicans. I don't like their ideas. I don't like the way that they go about things. I find them very difficult to deal with, to be on panels, but all that sort of stuff. Do you like the Republicans that you are around in Washington? Or you, do you struggle? Because this is a very difficult time in the history of the Republican Party.
1: It's a very difficult time, and there are many of them that I'm disappointed with because of, you know, how they've just abandoned their values to basically be part of what the former Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee called the Trump cult. Yeah. That's been unfortunate. But there have been other Republicans that I've gotten to know, I've disagreed with, but, you know, had a lot of respect for Paul Ryan, and he was helpful in helping us Usher through criminal justice reform. Uh, Trey Gowdy, I serve with on the Judiciary Committee. And of course, we agreed to disagree in the approach that he took around Benghazi. But I actually grew to respect his craft as a fierce advocate for his position, notwithstanding the fact that he was in a different place than me. Um, but we worked together on criminal justice reform. And what I found is that if you totally write them all off, then we never would have gotten to a place where we could have done the first step back.
0: See, that's why you were there. Not that I could get elected, but I couldn't do it. Because, I mean, those two in particular are particularly unctuous to me. I'm very angry with uh, Paul Ryan, the way he did his job, and Trey Gowdy. I'm, he's one of the worst of the whole Benghazi thing. I'm like, it's unforgivable just as a way of dragging the country off in a direction that it should not have been. And now they claim this is a witch hunt. when well, they're the ones that right. engage in
1: the witch hunt. right. right.
0: Right, um, you were. Let me. Can I go back a little bit further in your career? Because you represented CBS, right? When there was a lawsuit against, uh, was it MTV with with the Super Bowl? With yeah. The, so it was interesting. I had the wardrobe l- malfunction. Yeah. So, so within your capacity as a lawyer on that team, if you could speak about it, is it your position that Janet
1: planned to do that? I don't believe she planned to do it based on my information though i never was part of a personal interview with her of course but it was interesting because i had just transitioned from paul weiss which is the law firm i was at into viacom at the time viacom owned both cbs and mtv and that super bowl as you know took place in january it was a good super bowl i think it was the new england patriots you and remember the game the carolina panthers <laughs> if memory serves me correctly it was a good game halftime happens Super Bowl show, wardrobe malfunction. I kind of paid attention to it and kind of didn't because I got back into the game. We were like, oh, yo, what just happened? And then, boom, game started. It was a good game. Then I'm on my way home. And I say, wait a second. I said, <laughs> the halftime show was put on by MTV.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the broadcast was on CBS. hmm I now work for Viacom. This is about to affect my life for the next couple of months. (laughs) My phone's about to ring. (laughs) What did I just get myself into? And it was all Janet Jackson, all wardrobe malfunction, all the time for the next couple of months. There was a big FCC case, as you know. I was part of the team that worked on it, junior lawyer. But it was a great experience, and we all collectively got through it.
0: Let me bring this around uh, full circle, because the First Step Act is just part of what you have been trying to do as a legislator. And you made a big push to, to reform stop and frisk, but they're still stopping and frisking people. And they say they need to do it to protect themselves. And I respect their need, but it becomes a tool with which anybody is a police officer just needs to notice a furtive movement. What yes. is a furtive movement? Anything any officer wanted to be. That's correct. So it gives them the power to stop anybody for any reason, which of course is disproportionately used to stop black and brown young men. Yeah. You you tried, you, you but it you I mean you can't.
1: Succeed. How, what do you what do you want to? Well, that's do? actually it's it's a great great observation. But this is actually one of the areas where I'm proudest of, and was kind of my first interaction with taking on a big issue uh, when. Eric Adams, who was then a state senator, now our borough president, myself, I was in the assembly. And Eric was on the beat. Eric he was had been be a police officer, officer absolutely. Years. And uh, so when we got together, Eric would say, you know, Jeffries and Adams is like law and order, right? <laughs> right. I was a lawyer, he's order. He right. still carried the gun. Right. Uh, but we, um, we decided that we were going to take on this issue of the stop and frisk database, which was like outrageous. Ray Kelly was maintaining this electronic which, database.
0: Which, which, which if they stop you, they ask you for your information, even if they let you go, then your name and information gets into a database. So then if somebody is killed or some crime happens, they go and ask everybody in the database, including you. I, I have not committed a crime, but somebody stopped you, filled out a, I, forget, I think it's a 450. I think that's what they call it. And then and they go... So now
1: you're getting roped into the community of people who the police are looking at when they're talking about crime. absolutely, it was absolutely outrageous. Because at that point, stop and frisk was totally out of control. You had hundreds of thousands of people each and every year, mostly black and Latino, stopped, questioned, frisked, let go by the NYPD. But before they were let go, collected their personal information: name, address, description, social security number, in some instances put into a massive electronic database that we determined had over a million names in it. Mm. 90% of whom had been stopped, questioned frisked, and let go because they had done nothing wrong. And then what we found, the database was subjecting these individuals, mostly black and Latino to permanent criminal surveillance and suspicion to your point. And I had mothers, black mothers calling me up saying, You know, I don't understand why my son is always being visited by the police. He's a good boy. And then we look into it and we realize that he had been stopped because he was allegedly riding a skateboard on the sidewalk in violation of some random municipal ordinance. But his information had made its way into the database. So whenever anything happened in the neighborhood here in Clinton Hill, there'd be a knock at the door questioning the son. It traumatized the young fellow. It's a disgrace. So we said, no, we're getting rid of this database. So Adams and I, we moved legislation in 2010 through the assembly and through the state senate, sent it to the governor's desk. I'll never forget. We had a big discussion. Patterson was trying to decide whether to sign it or not. Bloomberg was against it. Bloomberg uh, asked Patterson to hold a meeting where Adams and I in Governor Patterson's office would debate Ray Kelly, then the police commissioner. Mm. So we had maybe an hour and 45-minute meeting to try to convince Patterson to sign the legislation. We all left not knowing what Patterson would do. Got a call maybe a day or two later saying is going to sign the bill into law, come to the bill-signing ceremony. One of the proudest moments that I've had. That, in many ways, was the beginning of the end of stop and frisk as we know it. So that database was dismantled under law, and then that subsequently led to the effort That resulted in a lawsuit against the NYPD to dismantle the stop and frisk practices as inconsistent with the Fourth Amendment, and stop and frisk have dramatically declined. Yes, at its height, they were over six hundred and fifty thousand a year. I believe it
0: was. I believe the statistic was one hundred and ten percent of the young black and brown men are
1: getting. So many of them were getting stopped multiple Multiple times. times. Now it's under fifty thousand a year, and. Even though Kelly argued you dramatically reduce stop and frisk, you're going to reduce the safety of the city. That didn't happen. The opposite has happened. The city's gotten safer. And, you know, we argued that you're wasting police resources on innocent young men. To go back to the first step out, you get
0: quite far along the way there. But until we end the war on drugs, what this is really trying to do will still be a problem.
1: How do we get to that? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the things we're trying to do, and Senator Schumer and I uh, have introduced legislation, Marijuana Freedom and Opportunity Act, which is designed to do several things, including deschedule marijuana at the federal level, which would decriminalize it. And we believe that that's the tip of the spear in terms of dismantling the failed war on drugs. Do you think you can get that passed? I think that, that we have a shot of working on this effort. There are a variety of different bills that are being moved through Congress to deal with this. There's a groundswell. It can be a meaningful second step. Uh, I believe many of my Republicans, again, trying to figure out how do you find commonality. Many of my Republican colleagues believe, or at least they did pre-Trump. We'll see what happens. But (laughs) they did believe in federalism, in states' rights. So states across the country, including purple states and even some red-leaning states contemplating decriminalizing marijuana or legalizing medical marijuana. So let's let the states do their thing. We can never arrive at full state autonomy on this issue if it's criminalized at the federal level. And so we think there's a strong federalism argument to be pursued here that will attract a lot of our Republican colleagues. Good luck. Thank you.
0: Thanks to the congressman for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Brandon Taggo and our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing person because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight.